Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. So, Mark, what do you remember Batman being like in any production before he had rubber nipples? I can remember distinctly him getting nuts. You want to get nuts? <laughs> get nuts. Get nuts. <laughs> oh. I mean, I fondly remember that part. Oh, yeah, great, great little scene there, which, you know... Uh, if you are familiar with that scene, very shortly after um, the offer to get nuts, Bruce Wayne gets taken out pretty quickly. But, I mean, all part of the ruse of being Bruce Wayne. <laughs> um, but what we're looking at today, well, I'm, I'm glad that you, you bring that up, because that is, that is pre-rubber nipples. In the, uh, the, Keaton, the Keaton movies, he just was flat muscle-chested. No, no need to make it think like, oh, this is just skin-tight rubber on him. This is actually like some sort of protective material. Um, yes. But before that, um, the Batman we had, the, like in the more public eye that wasn't um, in paper, which not a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if people read comic books, but what most people had exposure to more than that was either going to be what we saw from the Adam West serials um, that were on TV or from Super Friends. And... Mm-hmm. Do you recall how Batman was portrayed in either of those? You know, it, it's not really coming to me. Uh, I, I know this is mm-hmm. this is before a lot of the narratives were driven towards I work alone, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where Batman is like continually the dude that's like lone wolfing it all the time, you know? Yep. Uh, it was a, So uh, for me, this was a, an era where I was always familiar with Batman because he was marketed a ton, mm-hmm. especially with the movies yep. and uh, the animated series, of course, which, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're yeah. going to be talking about today. Yeah. yeah. The topic uh, of today's podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, so, well, if, if you're not too familiar, uh, if you're in Mark's shoes, you're not too familiar with Batman pre uh, the 89 movie. Uh, he was basically this kind of goofy, zany, um detective really uh what you saw because you'd have like adam west um adam west batman was like this very very comic representation when i say comic um it is both comedic like stand-up comic and also comic book because he and robin would punch villains and you get these big pow graphics popping up on the screen um all of his detective work was basically these goofy riddles that he had to solve and then he would he would think of them right away, or he'd let Robin guess and then correct him when Robin got it wrong, and then they would they would save the day. And when you looked at it, like like the 
the the show would do these weird things where they were like very life or death situations where Batman is somehow strapped to this contraption. He's about to get sawed in half or something and he narrowly makes an escape. And then other times he's singing to Robin like good night or something. And it yeah. was just off the wall, goofy and with some action. And, well, a lot of people have seen the the above the head bomb carrying. Oh you know, yes, from the which, from the movie. <laughs> yeah, which for those of you who who are listening to the audio only program, uh, it was absolutely ridiculous how Adam West held this bomb over his head. Like it's <laughs> it's he, he's physically holding it like mm-hmm. almost like a kettlebell with both hands over the top of his head and running around with it, and yep. it's it's iconic for how ridiculous it was. It is, and he was know. trying to find places to throw the bomb safely so it wouldn't get people hurt. <laughs> and at every turn, he thought he'd have something, like he's going to throw it into the water, but then there was a small family of ducks, so he couldn't throw it yes. there. He had to run away or... and do something different. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is also where we get like the overuse of bat in front of something. Because there was like batarangs yes. in the Batmobile. Those are always there. But then yes. that movie gave us bat shark repellent. Yes. That had to be exactly. there. The bat radar. Um, Joe, everything. What, the bat computer. what have I always said separates the, the good superheroes from the bad ones? Marketing? Brand recognition. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> exactly what it is. So get your name out there. Make some products. You know, throw the bat in front of it. But speaking of products, Joe... Mm-hmm. In line with what we've talked about with some of the other TV properties, okay, before we get into mm-hmm. the Batman animated series, and this is where we would have the uh, rotating, you know, bat graphic and the, we're going to go back to 1992. If you guys want to jump into the vortex with us and get on back to the early 90s, you know, get your Jinkos ready, round sunglasses, and your flannel, because we're doing this. Hey, oddly enough, just like what we did with Extreme Ghostbusters, we're going to go take a quick look at the world of 1992 to get us get the palate cleansed, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's 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 set back up for what 1992 was like. Now, there were a couple products that came out this year that I wanted to put a little bit of of uh, you know, focus on for today cuz Joe, some of them are actually probably a little more familiar than even you realize. Now, do you remember a product called Boss Coffee? I remember seeing it, but I, I'm not a coffee drinker today, and I definitely was not in 1992. <laughs> oh, dude, it, it was a Japanese coffee that came out mm-hmm. that uh, people were kind of losing their minds over because, you know, Japan was still foreign and scary to us back then. Yes. Um, which, once again, this is not me trying to make commentary. It's more just mm-hmm. people were weird. The world was still pretty small. <laughs> but the reason why I want to bring up Boss Coffee was very specific because of Tommy Lee Jones, oddly enough, mm-hmm. our... You know, our Two Face and in Batman Forever. Yes. Is it Batman Forever? Yes. Yeah, Batman Forever. Because at that point in time, Billy D. Williams was was thought to be That's too right. old to continue being Harvey Dent. That's right. Yeah. Well, okay. The, the reason why Boss Coffee is kind of on the map, it's not because of the release in 1992. It's actually because since 2006, Tommy Lee Jones has been the spokesperson for these commercials ah. exclusively in Japan. So if you ever want to take a look at these absolutely ridiculous as most Japanese commercials tend to be. Mm-hmm. And it's got Tommy Lee Jones, who is one of the most like, you know, one of the most self serious, you know, uh, holds himself in a different regard, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just, it's so strange. It doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> yeah. Boss coffee premiered mm-hmm. 1992. All right. Interesting. I guess yeah. this is like the earliest version of someone drinking the boss coffee, really liking it and being like, friend, you, you've introduced me to this coffee. Is, is, is this drugs? And like, no, yeah. 
It's even better than that. It's from Japan. <laughs> that's that's what we got with Boss Coffee, but it was really old at the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. this this is a this was an interesting year for a lot of these products okay there's a couple more i'm going to throw out here mm -hmm. the cliff bar premiered in 1992 oh really yeah i thought it's been around a lot longer I than that too. but yeah i was thinking at least the 80s yeah yeah and this is another one that some people mm -hmm. think happened in the 80s crystal pepsi premiered in 1992 uh, yes crystal pepsi <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah but like joe when you're sitting there drinking a pepsi as a kid I wanted to know what the marketing folks were thinking, where it's like, what could we do to make Pepsi better? And it's like, make it invisible? Yes. Everyone loves invisible things. This is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Is it water? Is it Pepsi? I don't know. I don't know. There's bubbles in it, yeah. but it could be sparkling water. Yeah, exactly. Is this Perrier? Exactly. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, Crystal Pepsi made its debut. And then also, this was a, a brand of clothing that a lot of folks may recognize from back in the day called FUBU. And oh, yes. For us, by us. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Uh, very popular, of course, because it was obviously made, created, and targeted towards the African-American market. Mm -hmm. uh, every now and again, those those lanky white boys would go find you know some of it, and everyone would go, dude, that's not for you. Please, please don't wear that. Mm -mm. And... Uh, and, I, and FUBU, I actually don't even remember if FUBU is still making products to this day, but I know they were for quite some time. You know, I, I'm not going to put it past it, considering I also found out, I think, uh, much, much earlier this year that Jinko was still making was still making jeans. And they are still yeah. expensive for some reason. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> FUBU could yeah, still very well be going. Honestly, I give FUBU a little bit more credit because uh, rather than make, like, parachute pants into jeans mm -hmm. you know the, fubu is basically making their own styles of like football jerseys and mm -hmm. uh, sporting apparel and so as much as i thought like i can't i can't pull off wearing fubu i did always kind of tip my hat to them that it was it was actually mm -hmm. cool looking stuff for oh, an original yeah. you know original product line so mm -hmm. uh, i always gave them a lot of credit but yeah that debuted in 1992 joe all right which yeah. i believe is the same year we get Batman the Animated Series. Oh, it totally is. Oh, yeah. That's why we're going through 1992. <laughs> there's, there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's actually a couple more things. We'll do quick, quick fire here. Okay. Popcorn Chicken debuted in 1992, <laughs> mm -hmm. and as well as the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh yeah, the SNES. Yep, and and a couple more. We've got the Talk Boy. Oh yeah. Series. Two. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the TI calculator. Well, this was the year that we specifically got the TI-85. So yep. quite a banner year, Joe. A lot yep. happening. That's the Chinese fireball of the calculator world right there. Like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. And uh, rounding us out, we've got gasoline at $1.13 a gallon. Oof. Oh, and, that, that stings. <laughs> yeah, little, mm -hmm. just a tiny, tiny little bit different now. Yep. So I mean, I even remember when gas went over a dollar for like the first time. My parents being really mad about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, the yeah, world we live in today. <laughs> yeah, your dad was already building the doomsday bunker. He was ahead of the curve. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, now that now that we now have 1992 here in the states for us, um, we're gonna bring it back to to Batman and how he gets reinvented just a few years earlier. 
because like we had said pre-1992 pre-80s we really had batman is this kind of this goofy detective um and he got that way because even originally he was almost like too dark uh for kids Mm -hmm. i mean it was the point where batman was actually believe it or not despite him having his one rule now he was totally fine with shooting dudes when he was originally uh made up in the 30s into the 40s he actually carried a gun with him regularly but um, they, they moved away from that. They softened his image. And then that softer image that we got used to. And then we got the success of Superman the movie in the 70s. And mm-hmm. they were immediately like, well, Warner Brothers is like, well, we got to be able to do this again with another character. And Batman was the first one that came to mind for making a movie. And they brought on Tim Burton to be the director of this. Now, before this, he had, I think, what, animated stuff? He, yep. didn't, have, he didn't have a whole lot to his name yet. So bringing on Tim Burton immediately had like fans like, whoa, hold on, pump the brakes. We can't have Batman being brought in by Tim Burton. He's going to make this into some weird, like goofy animation thing. And to mm-hmm. make things even worse for the fans at this time is when they announced Michael Keaton as the lead Damn. actor to be Bruce Wayne and Batman. And if looking at this, you know, from today's standpoint, retrospective, like, well, Michael Keaton did a great job. He did fine. But before that, he was a comedic actor. And they're like, well, yeah. fuck, we're just going to get some, like, we're going to get another Batman the movie from the 60s. And this is mm. what this is going to be again. It's going to be zany. It's going to be awful. But Tim Burton basically knew right away, like, we can't do Batman like that. Otherwise, this is going to be a laughing stock. It's kind of like, uh, he's like, we've got to do two things. One, we've got to do this like they did with Superman in the first movie. We've got to make it so it's something that adults want to come and see. We can't make this for the kids. Otherwise, it's going to flop. It's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number yeah. two, to make this work, and to actually make it to be something that the adults are going to like and listen to and take seriously, we can't make the movie about Batman. We have to make it about Bruce Wayne. And they focus it around how you had this larger backdrop and this darker past and how that shapes him and forms him into being the person he is and why he dresses up like a giant bat and goes out and beats up villains on rooftops at nights. And it made the story better. Like, they took this, they took the kind of the shift in how Batman was even being told in the comics at that time. Because before that, again, like you had the horror that was done to comic books in like the um, uh, basically the 60s, where you had uh, massive lawsuits against the industry saying that like they were promoting all these, this horrible ideology and the industry was forced to really soften the tone on a lot of the mm-hmm. characters. And that's where we get like Robin and Batman is like this softer detective as opposed to like this you know guy who's going around shooting people on rooftops but in the 80s like that stuff relaxes a little bit and we start get these these darker batman stories like batman year one uh the dark knight returns and the killing joke which if you've Mm -hmm. read any of those you know this is some pretty dark batman i think one of my favorite batman lines ever comes out of the dark knight returns when he's fighting this mutant in a junkyard and this mutant had previously like kicked Batman's ass, and he comes back to form a little bit and, and wins. And the uh, the mutant makes some sort of line, and Batman's like, "You made one mistake tonight, and one mistake was thinking that this was a junkyard, but really it's an operating table." And he snaps the guy's leg in half, and it just it was dark, it was brooding, it was fantastic, Batman. So the, after like these stories, you've got like the movie industry being like, this is how we have to tell Batman now. Maybe not like that dark. We don't have to have him breaking people's limbs on camera, but we can't have him like running around with a bomb over his head with bat shark repellent and telling bad 
and solving cheesy riddles to save the day. And if you're familiar with Batman 89, huge hit, like monumental success. It spawned what three more movies after that. Um, And then after Batman, Robin had to take a break for a bit. Um, And it really is what helped make telling Batman stories in the mainstream media more possible. If 89 flopped, we wouldn't have really most of the Batman stuff we have today. We definitely wouldn't have Batman the animated series. Yeah. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. you know, the, that's why the animated series I think was, it was so easy to be able to notice the difference and not, and not just Batman narratives, but, but the difference in how serious they took mm-hmm. this adaptation you know, compared to even other cartoons at the time, because in, in 92, like the other stuff that was on TV at that point for kids mm-hmm. uh, was like the, the original X-Men series had come out. Yep. Um, we've got the Adams family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, geez, like it wasn't, it wasn't like we were inundated with comic book properties. We had a few, Mm-mm. but like the rest of the notables were like goof troop and yeah. the adventurer, you know, mm-hmm. like, like they, these, the, the tone of these shows wasn't close. X-Men yeah. was a little bit, mm-hmm. right? But even then, it was still uh, airing on the side of corniness. Oh, versus, yeah. yeah, versus being uh, almost more of an adult, an adult tone, mm-hmm. but directed at children. Well, yeah, well, let's look at why that, that had to be for the most part, though, because you have basically um, standards and practices and all these rules that are set across um, what's considered child programming. Uh, when Batman... Uh, even before Batman aired, you had the major three networks and they had basically specific government guidelines saying that like you need to have so many hours of programming meant for children each day. <laughs> and this included, of course, like cartoons. So this greatly dictated lots of things and lots of rules that these cartoons had to follow. Like one, children must always be seen being safe at all times. So even if like a child gets kidnapped, there is, they're never really in any mortal danger. There's never like a gun pointed to them. There's never a knife at their throat. There's never anything like that. And even there will be like, other small things. If you see a child getting into a car, they have to animate the child getting a seatbelt put on. That was a specific yeah. rule. Like you had to do these things. Um, children have to use non-replicable weapons in TV shows, meaning it was okay for them to use like a ray gun or a laser blaster or something that's an unrealistic weapon, but they literally can't like defend themselves like a frying pan because realistically a kid could go grab a frying pan and smack someone on the side of the head. So these were specific rules. Now, when we look at Batman animated before this, we basically had Super Friends and that was his animated anything. So Super Friends had a lot of even more specific rules on them, meaning that in many cases, like, you couldn't have weapons even where weapons would seem realistic like with police officers and like people in military they never had weapons on them in the show because their censorship wouldn't allow for it this was a show uh, made by Hanna-Barbera and those were that was a a Hanna-Barbera specific we don't see guns in these things um and we see walkie-talkies used nefariously oh all the time with walkie-talkies and screaming and demands um, I mean, other things like even like the heroes weren't allowed to punch things in, in Super Friends. Like, yeah. could you imagine like Superman? Like one thing, like Superman literally did this thing where he lifted up a wall and the villain ran into it. And they almost considered having to edit that to be different because of what happened to the villains. And so, you got to think of this, too, though. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of kids named Kyle out there who weren't drinking Monster Energy yet. Mm. 
and they were trying to hold off the destruction of drywall by their I little say, hands. The drywall industry was basically dying at that time because it was lasting so well. It was so strong and durable. They're like, we're not selling enough of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this is, and then suddenly the the name Kyle like dominates children's names, boys' names for the next like ten years, and the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of names, if you uh, if you're familiar with the character Dark Side from the DC comics, he was brought in in the last season of Super Friends, and yeah. they too literally scary. yeah they almost changed his name because Dark Side was almost too scary of a name. Yeah, and at that point in time, after that, you had. A big name in the animation industry. Are you familiar with Gene McCurdy at all, Mark? Mm, Gene McCurdy. The name I've seen the name in a credit, but I'm not. I can't. I don't have Gene McCurdy committed to memory, though. She was a. Um, she, I believe, she was on the writing team and part of the production team for Super Friends and a lot of other Hanna Barbera stuff. And after, 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 like this the season of super friends she's like fuck this shit i'm out i can't do this anymore this crap is corny it's awful to write it's awful to produce and it's it's just bad storytelling it's bad tv and i'm not gonna have any part of it anymore so she boogies on out goes to warner brothers um and that's where that's really where this whole thing starts is gene mccurdy making it to warner brothers because she gets there and at the time the Warner brothers animation department is relatively small um there's not a lot going on there. Uh, it's basically you've got like Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies, and they, they bring that back every once in a while. And those are their big things. Well, something also really big happens in the 90s. A little man, you may have heard of him, by the name of Steven Spielberg. Mm. Yeah, it's not, it's not ringing a bell. Indie guy. For some reason, Warner Brothers is in love with him. They're like, this guy gets whatever the hell he wants. We're going to do anything to make Steven Spielberg happy. We don't care, honestly, if we sink too much money into a property and it flops. If it made Spielberg happy, it was good enough for us. That was literally the attitude behind it. And so Gene McCurdy gets um, a new idea thrown her. Like, we're going to make a show called Tiny Tunes, and it's literally going to be like mini versions of the Looney Tunes, but they're not the same characters. They're new characters, but we get, you know different sort of things. We've got mini like bunnies. We've got like ducks, new pigs, new Tasmanian devils, all sorts of things. And they decided they're going to do as much as they can. And that to have, they have like enough, like adult humor in that where like it goes over the children's heads, but like the yeah. adults can even like, Oh, that's funny. I understand that. That's pretty great. The animation was high quality. The stories were like, like little 15 minute shorts. So you get two episodes in a half hour and it was pretty great. So, and by pretty great, like, it was actually a hit for Warner Brothers. It did really well. So, after Gene McCurdy's success uh, with, um, with Tiny Toons, she gets this idea or this, this basic opportunity. We're like, you know what? Let's, let's, get, let's really expand the animation department. What else can we go into? Uh, superheroes were, are an untapped thing right now because we haven't done anything with them in a while. Who should we go with for that? And she was thinking, you know. How about Batman? They're like, great, let's make a Batman. Let's make a Batman cartoon. You're in charge of it. Go for it. So, because of the success of Tiny Toons and how well that went, she gets to get this Batman production off off the off the uh, you know, get, gets the ball rolling for it. Yeah. And one thing she had in mind right away is like, okay, if we're going superheroes, we are not going back to Super Friends. If we do that, this whole thing's lost. It's gone again. We've lost it. We've got to do something more of like what we did with Batman 89. 
Um, it was a great movie. It was a little darker. It was more had a more serious tone. And we have to find a way to bring that to TV. And another way she thought a way to do it is actually like, how about we actually go back even further? We go to the 40s. We go with Max Fleischer. Are you familiar with Max Fleischer? No, no, I'm, I'm learning a lot right now, though. Fantastic. I'm happy, happy, happy to teach. It's what I do. Um, if you remember um, really, really old Superman shorts and serials that were animated, they had a, yeah. oh, yes. they had a yes. darker I... tone to them. And by darker tone, it just wasn't super bright and happy everywhere. There were, yes. If there was a joke, it literally came at the last second, as like Clark Kent would say something to Lois Lane as the episode is taken yes. care of. But they're 15-minute shorts. They're action-packed. It's got this kind of, I mean, by kind of, like, it was definitely a darker, like, 1940s, like, almost like cop drama sort of, like, feel to them with what Superman yeah. was doing. He struggled. He persevered. He, you know, punched out guys when they needed it. And she's like, we need to do that. So she brings on um, two very important names. One specifically gets associated with Warner Bros. animation to this day, and that's Bruce Tim. Yes, you remember Bruce Tim. Good. Um... Oh, sorry. Yes, I, I am nodding my head. So once again, this is this is the difference between audio and video programs mm -hmm. here. Yes, I, yep. I am nodding my head to Joe, and Joe is staring at me like the nodding is yes, yes, it yes. is. Mm -hmm. Nodding equals yes, yes, sir. <laughs> So yeah, Bruce Tim, like this is a guy whose his work is influenced uh, basically almost how everything's drawn in, in Warner Brothers animation. If you remember the very successful Justice League and Justice League Unlimited shows, yes. um, and even like every Batman, Batman animated series, uh, like Batman Beyond and then Superman, the animated series, all of that is Bruce Tim style. Even if he's not directly animating for it anymore, it's like, nope, we've got to do what Bruce Tim did. Mm -hmm. So we get Bruce Tim, then Eric Radomansky, uh, who were also had worked on Tiny Toons with, with Gene McCurdy. But she's the one who went to these two and like, okay, we're going to make Batman. And I want Max, I want something that's Max Fleischer, but not Max Fleischer if you get my drift. And they're like, so we get to do like something more like noir and not, not goofy. And she's like, that's exactly what we want. And they're like, and we can do that now because last we were told the government has told us no on this. And she's like, just do it. We'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And they're like, all right, great. So basically, this is the first key that made this cartoon a success is you had animators, writers, and production. They're basically like, we're going to make this great. We're going to make this into something that is not only enjoyable for like anyone who likes Batman to watch, but if like someone were to watch this and they were to see the story or they were to see what's going on, one, they're going to love visually what's going on. And two, we're going to do our best to tell stories that are interesting to not only kids, but older audiences as well. And especially that older audience part, they're thinking the demographic we want is going to be like preteen to teen. That's what we, those are the, those, that's the audience we want to have for this show. So it's that idea that we're going to have this staff working on it. And we look at the staff itself, when we expand a little bit on it even further, what was really rare to happen is when they were making this show, the writers and the animators 
we're all on the same floor as each other. Not just the same building, mm -hmm. but the same yeah. floor of the building as each other. So that when the animator was working on something that was a part of the story, they could literally like walk four cubicles down and be like, hey, you wrote this down. I'm trying to draw it. I'm not sure what's going on. Can you tell me what you're thinking? And they could yeah. actually work through things very, very well. Yeah, which for folks that haven't seen this, which I mean, if you're listening to this program, you're likely a nerd or maybe related to Joe or myself. Either way, 30 years later, that collaboration between teams is one of the easiest things that you could tell about this show mm -hmm. because there's other animation at the same time that came out that we're even fans of that went through some really strange things because they would either outsource the animation to yep. a completely different studio in a different country mm -hmm. and due to how animation works and how long it takes to get ideas to television, there's a lot of time in between writing something, animating it and syncing it up and ready to go. So th this is a very important thing to, to note here because it's, it's a show that's almost produced as well as a movie, if that makes sense, Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. for an animated show. And like you mentioned, it, it starts as early as the title screen, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 actual the intro title cards. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like just really strong, mm -hmm. really like well-made art. So, so that's the first thing I, I noticed watching this TV show is that, yeah, I've seen some good animation before, mm -hmm. but not a concept like this executed this well. Like yeah. you just, just didn't see it. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I love that you bring up that you said it felt like watching a movie each week because actually that's something that, um, Bruce and Eric actually said right off the bat, like, when we make this, we're going to make it so it feels like you're watching a mini movie every week instead of a TV show. That's that's mm -hmm. one of the main goals we have here, other than, like, it's going to be serious, it's going to be noir, mini movie every week. So that's the production quality and the storytelling quality that we want. Mm -hmm. And we focus more on that animation because you're talking about how that quality can instantly kill you. Like, I, I mean, even, like, things you love are going to have bad episodes where the animation just sure. isn't quite there. Um, like I, there are episodes of Transformers where like I love, and then you've got like Soundwave looking over here, and then he turns, but for some reason the mouth mask stays put. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. Um, even yeah. like newer things, like honestly, like even Dragon Ball Z, which is we've talked about in the show, we've had Kale Bear on, and a lot of people love. Like you can tell, like some episodes are just, and others are like, huh. This is gonna be the episode where we stare a lot or have a lot of fast paced action, and the animation is just kind of. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. It's there. They did a job today. Um, yeah. But when it comes to animating, this is where you get Bruce Tim really, really coming into his own because this is a time where he is thinking like, all right, we're moving on to a serious cartoon. There's going to be a lot of action. So when I make these characters and when I design Batman, because he's the one who, when they started like pitching this more and more over like what they want the show to look like to executives, he's like, we have to have a Batman who can look serious, but also be animated for action. Well, this meant that if I draw him like I would in, he's depicted, like I would draw him like he's depicted in the cart in the comics, like very big muscular. We see every ab, we see every like bicep, we see all the things like no one's going to want to animate that shit. That's way too hard. So yeah. Bruce Tim gets this basically almost like um kind of like a Disney S quality of straights on curves. Like when you see like muscles, yeah, like yeah. you'll see like the yeah. bicep is there, but then the tricep is flat. Or you'll get like the pecs are there, but then the abs are flat. Uh they're just straight drawn. And this is great because you get 
this beautifully muscular yet simplistic looking character design that has became very unique to Bruce Tim. And this would end up becoming basically the industry standard for decades after that. Um, even in like stuff that's not necessarily very Bruce Tim style, because when you say Bruce Tim style, they could typically see they have very broad shoulders and then they, yes. na they narrow down at the waist quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they, they kind of have this like half moon orientation yeah. in the shoulders to the waist mm -hmm. and, and you can see that hourglass, but like, uh, masculine hourglass, if yeah, that makes sense. Like of. it's yeah. <laughs> like basically yeah. the top half of the hourglass and we cut the bottom exactly. half off. That's what we get. Exactly. Um, yeah. so like that becomes like big and then justice, the justice league show like takes that to the next level a little bit, yeah. even like the next iteration of Batman, the animated series when it moves from, I think Fox to the WB, like they, they amp that up a little bit too. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we get that, which makes him very easy to animate, but he looks very powerful at the same time. We make the grays on him darker. We swap the light blue out for black with these kind of like dark blue highlights for the costume. Yeah, the costume. yeah. yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. it's okay, so here's something very specific that I want to point out. It's, it's a show that really utilized the concept of light to dark, which mm -hmm. is a very basic, you know, art concept. And what they would typically do is that the form of Batman in this show would often not be presented with color first. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you see Batman as a dark figure and then it's, it's using lightning or some kind of like storm effect. Yeah. And then, and so when Batman does come into the light, his effects really pop, even though they're very minimal, mm -hmm. like they're very minimalistic, but how it's presented to you though, it's, it really uses the whole cow. And I know we say that a lot, but, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it is a, a much different way to, mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of bring him into the fold. But at the same time, we don't usually get in the, in the Batman universe up to this point, like brooding Batman, mm -hmm. you know, like, like Batman was meant to be feared by those that he, you know, hunted, right. Or, yeah. or went after and brought justice to. And it's like, yeah, Adam West would, would, punch things and occasionally it would say skeet on the screen you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so much much different like mm -hmm. batman actually brings consequence and he's something to be feared which is the whole point yeah. of the bat so yeah i i think that was one of the the really cool mm -hmm. things that was unique in this time period and yeah like you said it, it it's still it's still uh, to this day influencing Batman. Absolutely. And I mean, even like, I like that you bring up like kind of like the environment that Batman's into and how that's dramatically different because it was, it was made very different. And we get this, this different Gotham. That's not basically like this bright shining metropolis, which is metropolis is what it's supposed to be. Uh, but this is the first time on like, I guess since Tim Burton now, the first time in the animated world that we get this kind of darker Gotham. Uh, yeah. We have, the buildings are not these these bright grays in the daytime anymore. We typically have like they're either dark gray or they're brown. We have a night sky that's this eerie red all the time instead of a yeah. peaceful like calm like blue or something. Uh, yeah. It gets lit up by lightning on occasion, like you, like you said, and that's usually how we see Batman if he when he first gets introduced. Um, and then they also had this really great like Art Deco style. Uh, yes. for everything all the buildings the cars look like they're around the 40s anything that's in the yes. sky looks like how the 40s thought things would look in the future so yeah. the show did this great job of having this kind of like classic like classic yet worn down look 
but with all the modern technology that we had in the 90s. So like you had, you still had portable phones or you like portable phones. You had car phones <laughs> in yeah. Batman, yeah. Uh, which yeah. that, that hilarious like trend that did not go very, very long. Um, <laughs> but they had a very modern but classic look to it that was just so easy to fall in love with. It, it captured yeah. you right away because all these vehicles were like, even the Batmobile was this incredibly sleek looking like torpedo yeah. of a car and everything else just looked like there were these kind of like these bubbly forties vehicles. And it just stood out from everything else you were seeing at the time on TV. It, well, and, and this is where I think we, we have a good opportunity to kind of explain, uh, or at least I, I wanted to explain in my own words, what I thought Gotham was mm -hmm. because like you've mentioned in some of the, the film adaptations up to this point, which there are very few of course, but the, the television adaptation, looking at the the city of gotham and and once again we're talking about things that kind of trailblazed mm -hmm. for the next 30 years is that yeah gotham has this this veneer to it right like it's it's meant to look impressive it's meant to look like it's classy it's meant to look like it's a higher mm -hmm. society of living but we truly know that that's fake yeah. Like we truly know that that's not real mm -hmm. and you get to see that in this show. It's like, yeah, you're getting to see all these large buildings and you get to see the life that Bruce Wayne lives within it, which mm -hmm. is, you know, parties and me talking to important people. And if you just looked at the visual of Gotham, you would think, yes, this looks like the pinnacle of humanity at this point in time, but no, it's not. If you look at one frame, you, you would think, something different but if you look at the city as a whole yeah. it is a tremendous lie mm -hmm. you know um it's like it's like putting glitter on trash basically you know <laughs> pretty much because yeah you can go like in different parts of gotham you like you said you see these like like these lavish buildings and this these these like rich lifestyles but then you go a block away and there's a guy sleeping on the street and there's trash everywhere um yeah. so yeah. they do this and then really like they are i mean they were real city like how many big cities don't have that like in, the, in our country there are so many cities where you see like where where the money really is, and as soon as you yeah. leave that, you start to see how people are forced to live and adapt when they when they don't have the means to make their to make a living. And yeah. this put that out front for everyone to see to show that this is the world that Batman lives in. So yeah. now that we they have the idea, this is where Batman lives. This is how Batman's going to look. They said, "All right, it's time to put the trailer together." They put the trailer together. And it's basically this small, like, short of, like, a bank being robbed. They've got guns. They're firing back. The Batmobile flies into action. The, the robbers get away to a rooftop where Batman interferes with them. He punches them out, ties them up. The police show up, and they're just tied up under a spotlight. And then Batman, you just see, is a silhouette on the, on the, on the buildings. And then lightning flashes, and he's lit yeah. up. And yeah. if that sounds familiar and iconic, it's because that trailer is what gets reanimated and turned into the theme song for the opening of the show. But when they, when they made it, the idea that Tim and Eric had is like, okay, well, we're going to make it. We'll put some voice to it. We don't have the budget for voices yet, so we are going to do the voices ourselves. And they basically add these grunts and these very simple voices. But before they could even do that, um, Gene McCurdy yeah. saw it and loved it took it to everyone else who's like, okay, we know this was an idea, but now like we've got to really get money behind this. The, yeah. She showed that to executives and even Mr. Spielberg. And they're like, fucking make this show, man. Like just do yeah. it. Like you have to make it. Um, and that's where like funding really gets poured into Batman, um, uh, Batman, the animated series. 
Yeah. So yeah. Which, oh, I, go ahead. I, I got to stop you for one second because I love the design of Batman. Mm -hmm. Okay. But something that I always thought about the design of Bruce Wayne was that when I was growing up, I am a man with a long torso and shorter legs. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like whoever designed Batman mm -hmm. had to have lived a life like I once did. Because when you look at the design of Bruce Wayne, he has the whitest pants you've ever seen yes. on a person. <laughs> and, and it makes him look like a stump. Like he looks like a stump of a man and he's supposed to be billionaire, you know, billionaire playboy, <laughs> but he he's dressed like I was dressed when I was seven years old. Yep. And <laughs> Which, tan suits all day for yeah, Bruce Wayne in that show. He was doing it long before Obama. So we've mm -hmm. got tan suit <laughs> and, and it's seriously, if you look at this dude, look at his, and, and, and the, even the first few episodes, he's wearing this tan suit. And I swear to God, he could fit two people in those pairs of pants, like side by side. <laughs> but that was the 90s. We had baggy everything. <laughs> I know it was the 90s, but when you put Batman next to Bruce Wayne, it's like, are these different people? <laughs> it's like these, this can't be the same guy. There's no way, unless he's like, mm -hmm. you know, stuffing his pants with pillows or something. You know, like it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Because it, it, it's not like you're, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, but it's like his his waist as Batman is so tiny. Mm -hmm. Yet when he's dressing as Bruce Wayne, his shoulders and his waist, they're aligned. Yep, they're just one. <laughs> like 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 he is he is a man sized cankle mm -hmm. when he is Bruce Wayne. And right? what's even more bizarre is you know in the '90s there were shoulder pads in those suits. Oh, there totally were. So that means that as as bulky as you think those pants are, they're even puffier because they have to match the shoulder pads in that suit. Oh yeah. Yeah, dude. I just, I'm sorry. I couldn't go any longer without mentioning this. Like if you, if you watch this and you look at them side by side, you're like, you know, you know, we talked about how people, people look at Clark Kent and they're like, oh yeah, that's not Superman. Mm -hmm. If you looked at Batman and Bruce Wayne in this animated series, you're like, Rain no, no goddamn way. No, there's no, no goddamn way. <laughs> First no. of all, Bruce Wayne's a bit of an idiot. He just blows oh. his parents' money left and right. And now look at that. The man's a tree. Yeah. <laughs> He really, he seriously is. I'm expecting a hippie to be chained to him and, you know, preventing construction equipment from knocking him down. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's how big Bruce Wayne is. Oh, yeah. And you look at him here, which, which, you know what, who knows? Like maybe that was just the, uh, the way of disguising him yes. even more than he already was. And that's fine. But I just, as a thick boy who has always been a thick boy, it's like Bruce Wayne, I feel mm -hmm. seen. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, man. Okay, well, on top of like things that made the show great, the animation and obviously feeling seen uh, with the thickness here uh, and having a staff that's on the same page and on the same floor as each other, one thing that definitely would have killed this show with all that great things happening is if the stories weren't what they were. And Bruce Tim yeah. was actually quoted saying is that my art or the art of this show is useless without story. So, like he said, this idea of making every episode like a mini movie every week. So he was he helped with some of the writing to it, but mostly it was on Gene McCurdy to find people who are good writing, good at writing this, and could do this. One person who she thought of right away um, was actually um, Alan Burnett, who she worked with on Super Friends, and he also quit because of how bad the stories were. He actually oh. lamented on how like it got so bad at one point. He's like, anytime you're watching a show and you shrink the main people, and that's an episode, they're out of ideas for what they can do. And he talked about how like he had Robin fighting a tarantula, and Robin knocks the tarantula off the table, and the mm -hmm. and, and the censor's like, 
you have to show that the spider's okay. He's like, are you fucking serious? They had to go back and animate that you could see the spiders walking away and they weren't hurt. So he's they're walk- like... They're, walk- they're walking away like talking shit. Like, Motherfucker, yeah. those tiny shorts. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, I will do this if I can do what I want to and that's tell Noirs. And she's like, that's exactly what we're doing. He's like, seriously? Like, I didn't think we could do that. How can we do that? Well, here's a secret. Here's how they got around doing all those things that they found out they, they were saying they couldn't do. The punching thing, one Warner Brothers is like, fuck it, have him punch it. He's a superhero. He can do that. But like other things, like obviously like having like violence and guns going off, that was the thing that they figured out how the, this is where they got craved to figure out how they went around. They basically always animated the gun there. They'd animate the gun firing. You could always see the impact or like the weight of what happened after it fired but you'd never actually see the bullet hit anything. Yes. So you'd see the line leaving the gun. You'd like people would obviously like, Oh, I've been hit. And you see the dramatic like throwback and you see them going down. You may even see them dying, but you never see blood spattering out. You never see the bullet hit their body or anything. And that's basically how they got around all of that is like, they had their own, obviously they they have like someone working on staff. It's like, no, if you do this, like, like, the government's going to say no. And basically the person they had, and I, I feel horrible because I, I forget her name, um, who they had working on this, her mentality was basically like, what's the most we can get away with instead of just flat out saying no all the time. So when they'd write things down, she'd like change it to this instead and this will work. Um, and so that way when she, when she do that, it wouldn't be like change this to this instead. Otherwise your show's not going to work. It'd be like change it to this. So that way you're still telling the same story. You're still getting a similar visual but this is something that's now acceptable. Um, and that was something that absolutely was pinnacle to saving the show and making it what it was. So yeah. you get you get Alan Burnett, you get Mark Dini, who is one of the bigger writers on the show and writes a lot of the bigger episodes that are here. And they go ahead and they, they start telling these stories. And what makes a good story for a hero? Well, it has to be their villains. If you have villains who are doing evil for the sake of being evil, Skeletor shall have his revenge, He-Man! It falls apart. It just does. And, I mean, not He-Man all you want. I mean, it worked for what it was, but even then, like, you get He-Man the movie, and that's probably what killed He-Man. But um, (laughs) if you have... Yeah, you do end up getting what is unique for a lot of animation, which is a background and a history for almost every villain on this mm-hmm. show, for the exception of the Joker and the Penguin, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Like those are the only two that you don't get a fleshed out. Like this is this is day zero to to now. Yep. Like everybody else has a motivation. Mm-hmm. It, it's fully explained. It's fully realized. And and so yeah, like that's that's why when I was watching this, I'm like, this kind of enforced what I think of villainy even now. It's like, and what I appreciate about it, it's like, if I can understand, and we've mentioned this idea before, if I can understand why someone's doing what they're doing, I don't care how stupid it is. Mm-hmm. If I, if I know the motivation behind it, I can at least not put myself in their shoes, but I can understand why they did what they yes. did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's no justification. There's understanding. And yes. that's, what's going on here is because they knew that when they write these villains, that they have to make them people and yeah. they are people who in their minds or in their, and even in their reality, they've been wronged by society, by someone specific. And what they're doing now in their mind is writing what was wrong, what was done wrong to them, even if it's yeah. not done the right way. 
they're now doing something they shouldn't be doing, but they're doing it with a just, I, I take it back, not a justifiable reason, but they're doing it with reason. And yeah. that is what hooks you on every single character. Uh, more, I would say every single Lin on this, even like kind of like odd ones, like Tempest Fugit, who like, to my knowledge, like he's only there. Like I didn't like the only reason I even recognize the name is because it's on my, 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 my parents' grandfather clock. And like, they're making my grandfather clock into a villain, but they made yeah. it enjoyable. They would do that. And you would have these villains, like, in sometimes very realistic senses. Like, you had, like, a uh, an Olympian athlete who kind of lost his mind after he wasn't competing anymore and literally got to the point where he used his riches and wealth to make him where he thought he was actually Zeus. And he was suffering from, like, some sort of bizarre mental illness. Um, and I think one of the best cases where we really see this uh, with, with one of the more renowned Batman villains is Mr. Freeze in the episode Heart of Ice. Yes. And this is, believe it or not, they made the backstory for Mr. Freeze. Yeah. They made Nora Frost because before this, Mr. Freeze was just a weird guy with a ray that froze things. And that was that was Mr. Freeze and everything. Yeah. So they're like, well, we're going to make the character. We're going to bring him in, but we can't do that. So what do we do? We give him, again, motivation. He has this tragic background. And you find out again, like the reason why he couldn't save his wife is because basically the people who were funding his research, were like, we can't do it anymore. Like, it's not like you're not going far enough. We have to put the plug on this. And then his wife is left in cryostasis. Accidents ensue. He becomes Mr. Freeze and he goes after initially the people who wronged him. And then when that's not enough, he just keeps doing what he's doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, same thing goes for Catwoman. You know, Catwoman is trying to uh, preserve this land for mountain lions that it's mm -hmm. you know it's, it's that's off of you know off of the city. Uh, for Poison Ivy, like Poison Ivy is trying to revive these uh, endangered or actually mm -hmm. extinct breed of roses. You know, and and so yeah, they're evil people, or at least yeah. they're you know their their motivations are more towards the you know uh, the the outside of the the realm of good mm -hmm. but you at least can can figure that out it's like okay yeah. yes and i, I want to i do want to say when that mountain lion shows up at the end of the two-part catwoman episode <laughs> and it just totally you're, you're just thinking is mountain lions will kill the shit out of things definitely they and murder like, lots of things <laughs> and this mountain lion standing over red claw and you're like that mountain lion is going to kill that person yes but either way, like I, I remember as a kid and as an adult watching that episode, I'm like, I am, mm -hmm. I'm just laughing at this and I shouldn't be, <laughs> but it's, it's just funny. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it reminds me of like the end of dodgeball when Chuck Norris just shows up <laughs> and he gets the thumb. That's what the mountain lion was like at the end of this. Just he... like, <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Mountain lion. Yeah, 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 but yeah, and then Red Claws in jail later. Fucking mountain lion. Yeah, he's he's bulbous now, and he's got a, a huge thing of KFC he's eating out of in prison somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, it's it is true. Like it, it the, the the larger point is mm -hmm. that for the rogues gallery of of Batman, right, and all of these different things that we honestly haven't even mentioned the Joker yet and the iconic Mark Hamill. Oh yeah, you know, mm -hmm. the like these 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 characters, you know, they they make sense, mm -hmm. and so that's why I think it's easy for kids and for people that discover it later to kind of buy into this. Like yeah. it's, yeah, yeah, hundred percent, man. Like 
you've got realistic villains, you've got great animation, you've got great storytelling going on, and there are really two more key pieces that make this a great show for what it was and still is. And one of them is the music. Yes. The music is I was, key. I was, mm -hmm. Yes, I was waiting for this moment to shine. Like I wanted to wear a cape for it so I could flip mm -hmm. the cape over and be like, yep, I'm ready. Let's talk about music. <laughs> yeah. Yes, dude. The music for this is what truly for me made this a cinematic experience because, it, it, okay, so if memory serves, mm -hmm. there was like 10 different composers that contributed to the animated series. Mm -hmm. And each one of them carries this iconic sound from the the theme song all the way through to the end credits of every fucking episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's it's impressive, it's distinct, mm -hmm. and there's a reason why they still use the animated series Batman theme recurring in other things. Yep. Even now, mm -hmm. like it's it's that good, and it it truly gives a footing to everything in this series. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, truly believe it mm -hmm. i mean it's it's this mix of haunting and yet uplifting that just doesn't seem like it should be possible but that's what they pull off every episode and they also do a great job of how like the episodes aren't wall-to-wall -wall music like the music yeah. comes in at just the right moment there are times where you only sound maybe a tin can like being blown by the wind down a road because they yeah. want the sound to hook you into what's going on and bring you into the moment. And then the music creeps in and then just adds and escalates things. And while, while there were like overall 10 composers, the first one they brought in who really got the ball working on what this is, was Shirley Mr. Walker. Oh, well, Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman helped compose mm -hmm. the theme. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, well, and Shirley Walker though, was one of the like few female composers even working in Hollywood at mm -hmm. that point in time. And so that that was, I think, really. I'm not going to use like the uh, the brave thing here because mm -hmm. bravery is not it. It's just she technically it was great rare. composer, mm -hmm. very rare, and they and, and they put her front and center. Yeah, and she she I mean she'd previously been working with like I think even learning under Danny Elfman, which is a part yeah. of how how this started. And on top of rare, like yes, like having having a a a female composer as your lead composer for the show incredibly rare but also one actually having an orchestra for your show for a cartoon <laughs> yes. unheard of absolutely unheard of like because originally like going for it they were originally like all right well we'll use like synth like synth sound bites like because that's what everyone gets but you know how he said that we're going to make every we're, like the biggest thing that warner brothers is trying to do right now is just make um spielberg happy well yeah. spielberg sees what's going on with the show he sees the animation he's read some of the stories and he's like, what are you guys doing for music? They're like, oh, we're going to do some synth stuff. He's like, no, no, you can't do that. You're going to have an orchestra for your show. I'll make sure it happens. And Spielberg gets them like a full orchestra for every episode of the show. And like they were blown away by it. Like we had no idea we, this would be a thing we'd even get for this show. Uh, and, and Spielberg makes it happen. So you have this amazing sound for the show now. And now, on the topic of sound, I think this brings us to the last part of this, because this is going to be voice casting. And I think this is pivotal, because like, to like some people, they're like, oh, hey, who's, who's your favorite Batman? Is it Bale? Is it Kilmer? Is it, is it Keaton? Is it Clooney? Is it West? And I'm like, fucking Kevin Conroy. It's Conroy. Conroy's it's my always, fucking Batman. 100%. Always Conroy. Just like Mark Hamill's like, Mark Hamill's my tie for the Joker with Heath Ledger. 
HL and 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 Mark Hamill. Those are my boys. Um, well, who? But how how many times have you and I just like we've stopped everything we've been saying, mm-hmm. right? And we'll just go, Alfred, where's the mayonnaise? <laughs> You know, like we, you and I have done that plenty of times. We're just like, you know, yeah. how is it? It's, it's so iconic just to hear him go, Alfred, you know, like yeah. th- whether it's a video game, mm-hmm. whether it's the TV show, like for, yeah, for, for me, Conroy made Batman iconic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because that balance of Bruce Wayne and Batman voice, he did it without it being ridiculous like a Christian Bale. Yep. You know, and I don't care for Christian Bale's performance as the Batman voice. Mm-hmm. I still think it's, passable and fine oh yeah but conroy was like one of the few people mm-hmm. that balanced it and i've never questioned it at all no it's he has this perfect like bruce wayne is relaxed and lackadaisical and batman has this constant gravel to his voice is the best way i can think to explain it, it sounds like there are rocks like instead of saliva like churning back in the, in, in the back of his palate and he had this basically amazing idea for batman and it, by, by by batman like Looking at Conroy, Conroy is not a voice actor by trade initially when he came on. He had done a couple voiceover things, like, and that was it. He didn't even have a voiceover agent. He had an acting agent. He was mostly a stage actor in New York. But his yeah. agent gets this, hey, they're doing a Batman cartoon. I think you should try it. And he's like, really? I don't do voice work like that. And he's like, no, 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 just, just try it. It's, I know it's different, but go in there. So Conroy goes in and basically thinks, like, well, I'm a character actor. I'm going to focus on the characters here. So what I have to do to bring this character to life and importantly, keep it from getting stale is I have to look at who Batman is. And Batman, in this case, this is kind of recording, is Batman is not the disguise. Batman is who he went, who he became to after the tragedy that happened and he experienced as a child. Batman is where he's the most comfortable. And he used this idea to make this voice, to make this be like, and you can see that in, in what's going on here. Because when you watch the show and you see Batman and then they transition something with Bruce Wayne, you get this feel that like Batman's trying to make himself sound nice to be Bruce Wayne. And it totally is. It totally is. It's yeah. It's brilliant. And looking at even like him coming in that day, um, Andrea Romero, who's the voice director for the series, um, she has lots of experience from like one, just directing, stage management, acting, um, and eventually an agent. She listened to over 500 auditions for the voice of Batman. Yes. Didn't love any of them. She's like, I don't know what we're going to do. We don't have a lead. Um, And then then one day, Conroy steps in. And I I don't even know if they were even looking for auditions that day. He he just necessarily showed up and wanted to talk to the director about the role. And she admits, like, not thrilled that this guy walks in wanting to do this. And then she's like, what hooked me at it, though, is instead of just, like, wanting to audition right away he asked questions about the character he asked questions about the production and what was going on and she's like this is different he clearly cares at least on some level hopefully as much about this as we do we'll give him a shot and then she's like fell in love instantly just head over heels over over this over this depiction and i mean sadly conroy has only been able to portray batman live action once and it was in a cw series and the way they chose to do it sucked. I mean, I know Conroy's but he, great, but the way he looked they great. did it sucked. He, he looked great. He did. probably felt great too. Oh yeah, you know. And and Conroy yeah. is someone who, like, he comes back as Batman so frequently. Like he's yeah. he's there. Uh, the Arkham series. He's he's Batman for the voice of all of that except for Origins. 
um, yeah. all the Justice League um, cartoons, uh, a majority of even like their animated universe that they did for a while before they rebooted it. Conroy was popped in every once in a while for those two. Um, if you if you truly want to see uh, just how I th how think or how I th how think if you want to know how think so do <laughs> sorry <laughs> if you if you want to see a really strong presentation of Conroy as Batman um, it's it's in the first episode where the Scarecrow appears mm -hmm. and he's talking to I think it's like the University of Gotham or whatever when he's trying to figure out where these like certain sound oh no 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 man bat it was man bat mm -hmm. sorry where he, he's talking to this this uh, these scientists on the phone, but he's in the suit as Batman, talking to them through the phone as Bruce Wayne. Yes. And and like when you think of a character and like trying to keep their guys up and everything, you could easily slip up there, mm -hmm. right? But to see him kind of code switch, he knows he has to talk as Bruce Wayne, even though he's wearing the suit, which is a rare thing for him. Yep. That that was a really cool exchange to see it because as soon as he hangs the phone he's like you know he, he obviously doesn't say this but he's like god damn it they're lying to me you know like, <laughs> like it's like as, as soon as he hangs up you're just like he's back to batman because he's in the suit and oh, yeah. like, i thought that, that was really cool switch. Yeah. yeah very cool um and, god yeah yeah and 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 so for a lot of folks watching this show mm -hmm. because now it's like it's like commonplace as a nerd to go like mark hamill is joker mm -hmm. right well, a lot of us didn't know that when we were watching this for the first time, no. you know, as kids, we had no idea it was Luke Skywalker, you know, under the purple suit, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, like none of us knew that. And so one thing about the Joker that I always really appreciated with this, and it wasn't just the voice, mm -hmm. it was the fact that the Joker, while he is an urban terrorist and a, you know, a horrible villain, mm -hmm. not, not in the sense that he's a bad villain, but like, he's just horrible in the way yeah. that he <laughs> treats people. Mm -hmm. uh, his his portrayal as the Joker in some of the early episodes of this series, sometimes he's not even focused purely on the villainy. Mm -mm. Like he interacts with people almost how I do when it's like going into Home Depot and I don't want to be like talked to by one of the employees. Mm -hmm. That's how the Joker interacts with a lot of people yeah. in this in the show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's like he's he's just mildly annoyed by humanity uh, overall. Yeah. And, and so to see him interact with people is funny because uh, there's there's one point there's a, a little boy who is at a party that the Joker crashes and mm -hmm. so he he follows the Joker home and you would think the Joker would just be like you know I'll just kill the kid and yeah. I'll and, and put the body somewhere mm -hmm. no he's like he's like mildly annoyed the child is there <laughs> and instead he's like he goes into babysitter mode it is the mm -hmm. weirdest. It's the weirdest thing. It's like, it's such a juxtaposed like way to see the Joker, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. but it's, but at the same time, it's, it's development that literally no other Batman property will ever take mm -hmm. time to do. No, you I, know, I, jumping on that, that bandwagon with like, just these, the way they put the Joker together with this, uh, like one of my favorite Joker moments comes from uh, this, the series spun off into two feature films. Uh, the first one, Mask of the Phantasm. And yes. there's this older character who's afraid Batman's coming to kill him, goes to the Joker looking for help, and he like, You gotta help me, Joker. And he grabs yeah. like joke he grabs the Joker, like the balls on this guy for grabbing the Joker by his suit and pulling him towards him needs to help him. And you see the rage just build up in the Joker and you like it's even shifting the color on the screen. He just yeah. goes, Don't touch me, old man. I don't yeah. know where you've been. <laughs> He's like, Of course I'll help you. It's the Batman. I hate him. Uh, just <laughs> goes from like terrifying to funny in like nothing 
And looking at that, though, like one thing that Romero like commented on when Mark Hamill came in and she pitched him for doing this one, Mark Hamill wasn't even the first voice for this. And yeah. very another person who famously portrayed a clown that was terrifying was the original voice. Take a guess who it is. Famous scary clown. Oh, good. Oh, um, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> he also once in the movie about killer gorillas, the lost city of Zinge, he was the butler in Clue. Um, yeah, dude, I, the, I'm embarrassed because I know the name, but it's not it's not there right now. It's Tim Curry. Tim Curry yes. was originally see, yep originally I, cast I, red lines and everything. See, here's the issue. I I like in my mind, I'm seeing all the pictures of Tim Curry. Like I'm seeing him in Home Alone <laughs> too. You know, I'm I'm seeing him even as an older age after he had a stroke. Like I'm seeing all the photos mm -hmm. of Tim Curry in my head, and I'm like, fuck, I haven't heard his name in so long. Yeah, and he <sighs> he recorded. He had episodes done, and then they. They they pitched the uh, like I think some executive saw saw like the, the the reading or heard it and he's like I don't like it change it I don't want him as I don't want him as the Joker. That's all that that's all that Romero's ever said about it. She doesn't give us a why. We don't know if this man just personally had a thing against Tim Curry or maybe he legit didn't like the the uh, the character that Tim Curry was was doing here or maybe he felt again like oh they're just gonna see it and that's all it's gonna be. So but anyway Curry has to be recast. So she goes yeah. to a few people doesn't like him throws it out there to Mark Hamill. And she's like, it was like this guy had been practicing for this role his whole life. And we didn't even know it. That's how well he did this. He had this ability to get manic, terrifying, funny, and at times remorseful all in this character. They weren't expecting him to do. And one thing that Hamill definitely remembers from auditioning as the Joker, when he saw the script for the Joker that he was reading on the very top in handwriting, it said, do not do Jack Nicholson. And he was like, yeah. honestly, that was a relief because like I one, he's like, Jack Nicholson is Jack Nicholson. He did a great job in the movie. But like, if I had to do him the whole series, like, I don't know if I would have liked it as much because then I'm just trying to imitate what someone else did, but I got to do what I wanted to with the Joker and turn him into who I wanted to and make him make the character they wanted here. And again, because of the series, we get this iconic Joker out of it where again, like a lot of people, like we're saying Conroy's our Batman. There are so many people who say Hamill's their Joker, like hands down. There's no one, anything they've done hasn't come close to what Hamill did in the series. Yeah, and I think it's so obviously on the TV show, he establishes an, an incredible voice mm -hmm. and he establishes really just, just how, how the Joker should represent a light switch, mm -hmm. right? And how he can go from comedic to one second to deranged the next and then have respect for Batman. Yeah. You know, like it's it's such a, a an interesting change. And this doesn't apply to the animated series. But as you go through the Arkham series mm -hmm. and getting to see how his voice changes because his mental state is degrading, his yeah. body is degrading. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's what I think a true triumph is to Mark Hamill mm -hmm. for this. Um, but within the animated series still like there's there's no comparison yeah i mean he's he is the mm -hmm. he's one of the best portrayals of the joker that you'll ever see absolutely and looking at other characters in the show that are iconic one is one the show made is harley quinn yes uh, arlene sorkin did not did not exist before this and like arlene sorkin she was actually one of the friends of uh the writer mark dini 
on the show. Yeah. And he was one originally just designing Harley after Arlene in the first place. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm gonna make this like my friend. And then they went to like cast her and they're like, Well, who should we get? And Danny's like, Why don't we get my friend? <laughs> Why don't we get Arlene to do it? And Arlene has this what he described as a warped Billy Holiday voice that has also just Man. become directly associated Phenomenal. with the character. Like you yeah. don't like Grant, I haven't seen her new series where uh, Kaylee Kuoko was voicing her on um, HBO, but yeah. I imagine, like most cases, you're getting someone who's trying to redo Arlene Sorkin's voice. Uh, yeah, for the oh, character. totally. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you know where they kind of fail too is, and I, well, I say fail, but I should say interpret differently mm-hmm. because that's that's truly what it is. You know, when you see Harley Quinn in, you know, in in like the Suicide Squad series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even even like uh, post Sorkin, they lean so hard into into the uh, the most exaggerated parts of her voice. Yep. Whereas in the animated series, yeah, she has some of those like really weird. I don't know if you want to call it plucky ways of talking, mm-hmm. but it doesn't apply to every single word. No. You know, because to to me, it's like it's it's an acknowledgement that her brain really has become different people right there's different people in her brain there's there's who she was before she became this deranged you know uh criminal yeah and and there's the pre-life and so you kind of hear that in the voice the the voice doesn't truly represent just harley it represents who she was before that point too yeah and so after this you know after the stage you get people who just want to make the most comical parts of her voice Mm -hmm. in every single word and it doesn't work it doesn't work Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. And again, like even they, like even then, Sorkin does a great job of showing them between Harleen Quinzel and Harley Quinn. Um, yeah, and that's, I think she just great. And again, like you said, like how she can like turn on certain parts of her, of her voice to work. Like when she says like Mister J, like yeah, not every J is pronounced like she says like J for Joker, which again just shows yeah. like the affinity she had for the Joker and this bizarre like mentality behind her where like she gets abused by joker pretty hard throughout the series but seems to always for some reason come back to him in a way that she can't describe even herself because there's even i think one episode where she decides she's going to leave the joker and she actually like hangs out with batman for most of the series uh for the episode which is a great episode um by the way there's so many so many good ones in here but looking at how like this cast was so successful one in huge, huge part is Romero. And not only did she she do the casting, but she would always have like as much as she could. She couldn't do it all the time, she admitted, because it's time constraints will happen. But she would as much as possible have the cast get together and read the episode together. So that way they could feed off of each other. They could really yes. most of these people again were character actors, so that they could actually before they'd go to record, would have an idea of their voice interacting with other people uh, and how what their characters were feeling at the time. So Romero could actually direct them not only in the moment of recording, but before that as an episode of, uh, of uh, as a whole. And then yeah. if you look at the actual cast of this, you have like, you have some recurring ep- like characters that are in most episodes, of course, like Batman, Alfred and like commissioner Gordon are basically in every episode. Um, yeah. With the exception of yeah. Gordon probably isn't in every episode. Gordon, uh, Gordon definitely shows up quite a bit, mm-hmm. but I mean, for me, Gordon, and even to an extent, um, uh, some of the supporting characters that appear there, they're not, 
I, I don't want to call it a negative thing, mm-hmm. but I don't always think of, you know, Alfred as a standout. You know, I don't always mm-hmm. think of Commissioner Gordon as a standout. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, uh, some of the other like police figures that are there that always show up that are meant to be kind of plucky and comedy relief. Don't always really think of them when I think of this series, no. you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're just a very small part of it. And I, I hate to say that for Alfred, you know, because Alfred is now, you know, getting his own stories and his own backstory, and yeah. like you know, oh, he's he's technically he's a mm-hmm. uh, he's a soldier in a garden versus a gardener in war mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know. And so yep. it's like, it's like, yeah, okay, I get that. That's okay. But I mean, even this Alfred yeah. Pennyworth was was great for the for the fact that he would actually stand up to Bruce and Batman every once in a while. If would. Batman would make like a questionable decision, Alfred would question it and like throw it out there for him. Because like yeah. if you look at Alfred Pennyworth at least in the films, and I, I I'm the actor from that is like like escaping me he's my tim curry in the moment um <laughs> but like he was basically he just did whatever batman asked him to do unquestionably like, yep no problem uh the biggest standout that i could remember him doing is the fact that when michael keaton spit out his soup and said it was cold and alfred said it was fishy swasser and then alfred's like bruce's like well so what so what the fuck it's still cold like, well it's supposed to be cold oh okay i like it now that's the most i saw that alfred really stand out to bruce in those um whereas yeah. this one yeah. does but even then, like I'm like his voice is escaping me. But let's look at like some of the overall like names that have come into the show. Tara Strong, who again an, an animated staple, was Barbara Gordon on the series, so she was there pretty regularly. Paul mm-hmm. Williams, if you're not familiar with him, is he's a musician. Uh, he is known for writing and singing the song "We've Only Just Begun" and "Just an Old Fashioned Love Song." Was the Penguin in the show? Ron Perlman, you have to have you oh, have to know this name um, if you've listened to our show before. Was Clayface in the animated yes. series? Frank Welker, who's been in many, many a cartoon, had the iconic role of Isis, who is Catwoman's cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was here. Uh, John DeLance, who is Q, uh, had an episode. Heather Locklear was in the show. Ernie Hudson, Adam West had a had a cameo on here. And LeVar yep. Burton, Maurice LaMange, who we've talked about. The like, late Ed Asner as well. They, uh, yeah. Ed Asner, who is you know the main character in Up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I you, these are voices that are preserved, fortunately, in this mm-hmm. series because it is sad that that some of these folks are passing on now. Yeah. You know, it's 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 been it's been that long. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, so we like those are like this is everything that makes this show great. Like the way they can collaborate, the animation, the storytelling, the voice, the the dedication to get the show right by its executive producer, because Bruce Tim, I think has said several times, like this show wouldn't have happened without Jean McCurdy. If it wasn't for what she did and the passion she had for this, this show would have fell apart. But, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to mention one thing before we get too far away from the voice actors. Mm-hmm. We technically got more than one Star Trek alum because Kate okay. Mulgrew was also Red Claw. Oh no shit. I forgot about Kate Mulgrew being in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kate Mulgrew was on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and the way that HBO has the, the episode set up, um, her arc is like the very first thing you see. So ah, yeah. Okay. Right away. I was like, Oh yeah. Look at Janeway. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. But well, no, you're, you're, you're yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah well, I would say actually the Var Burton was in there too. I don't know if you missed that, but no, no, I did. I okay, said there's, good. there's, there's multiple Star oh, Trek yeah. alum in there. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, I think kind of bringing things to a close here, uh, two things. One, standout episodes. I know we've talked about Heart of Ice. We've talked about Red Claw. Um, but do you have any other episode that you think of 
um, when you think of this series, that this is like, I mean, the series itself is iconic, but this episode is also it really aids to that iconicness of the series. Do you have anything that stands out to you? For me, when when I think of the the iconography of this this series, the one that I usually come back to the most is Clayface to Face, mm-hmm. because the the whole Clayface arc it for me it sums up a lot of what's good about the animated series in that Batman is not just fighting crime. Like sometimes he's fighting these things that that aren't traditional criminals or not traditional mm-hmm. villains. And I talked about Man Bat earlier. You know, Clayface is one of these these truly uh, terrifying villains that Batman yeah. fights. And for, as a child, I I was kind of freaked out by it. Like the idea that you could be fighting something and like physically looking like you're beating it, but then all of a sudden it just molds back together and keeps fighting you. To me, I I saw that episode a lot growing up because obviously I didn't own the videos or anything. Mm-hmm. So seeing Clayface was terrifying, and I thought his episodes were 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 awesome to see. And I'm I'm not going into any of the Joker stuff on purpose mm-hmm. because I think people will find that anyway. Oh, yeah. But the Clayface stuff, yeah, mm-hmm. just just messed with me and, as a kid. I mean, especially like that first episode is in where he almost kills Batman, but like <laughs> all he does is he picks him up and he shoves him inside of himself to try and suffer. Yeah. Him. And yeah. the way Batman gets out is he shoots the grapple gun out through him and then he runs away after he's like, fuck that. I can't punch this guy out. Like, yeah. The gas bombs aren't doing anything. I've got to find some other way to beat him. And like, he barely, barely gets out of there. It was terrifying and creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, that that's, that's like the animated series in a nutshell for me is that this Batman is not invincible. Mm-mm. You know, th- this Batman is going to face uh, not just the, the most militant of the Batman rogues gallery. Like he's going to be fighting some, some weird things and you're going to yeah. see a lot of variety in the show that you'll never see in the cinematic universe. Mm-mm. So nope. yeah, that's, that's my big takeaway. Nice. Um, I think mine is definitely um, almost got him. And it's an episode that focuses on the rogues gallery of villains. And basically it opens with all the villains being together, playing a poker game, like in a warehouse somewhere. And yeah. they're all sharing their stories about how they almost got Batman this one time. And so yeah. you go, they go around the table. You've got Joker, Two-Face, Riddler. Um, Killer Croc. Poison, Killer Croc. Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy. Yeah. And like you see more in the background who just don't, they don't have a speaking role in it because I, they probably just wanted them there. But like, Ah, uh, the Mad Hatter. The there. Mad Hatter was there. Yeah, and... well, the Joker mentions the Mad Hatter is like the, you see the Mad Hatter in the series, but like the Joker is, as they're playing cards, he mentions the Mad Hatter is like mm-hmm. like getting beaten by Batman recently, almost like you know you go to you, if you if you're a member of these like Longerberger basket parties that mm-hmm. that, that people used to do in the '90s, like you're you're just talking about the local gossip of your neighborhood. Yep, that's what this felt like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, sorry. and no, and, and, and like everything to the point where like you see like again like I think this is one of the first times you really see what the villains even think about each other because like I mean the comics like Two Face and Joker fucking hate each other like they cannot stand each other at all. Um, Penguin's got his own little thing going on where he can work with anyone, but he's always trying to find ways for him to come out on top, and you really see that in this episode over like joker obviously like belittles two-face over like i thought i couldn't believe you thought a giant coin was going to work again um, yeah all these yeah. things you get to killer croc and like all the other characters have 
like basically like when they start talking about it, it does like a flashback sequence and you see what they're talking about as it happens. But Killer Croc is like, there was this one time where I knocked him down to the ground. And I picked up a rock and I was going to smash him in the head, but I missed. And then they just <laughs> stare at him like he's a fucking idiot. And then they're like, they start to quickly move on. And it pans back to Croc. And he's like, well, it was a really big rock. Yeah, (laughs) that's what's really, really funny about this is that you get to see what these villains think about each other, too, not just about what they think of Batman. But then they they kind of share their theories, too, of who they think Batman is. And so it's it's a really weird way to humanize people that don't behave human. And and it's 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 great. It's really great. Like from the title card, dude, the title card shows the. The, the poker table like you mentioned mm-hmm. set against like you know light so you just see the it's it's also iconic for the for the series yes. um but yeah it's 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 hilarious it is the it's like the idea of the, the dogs playing poker but they're replaced with with batman villains yeah. it's, it's great fantastic so i guess uh well, i think where we can leave this one then is like we've done with a lot of things we've talked about in the past they're no longer airing because you know we talked about things that happened when we were younger um and the only thing I think still going since we were kids is probably The Simpsons because that's eternal. Yeah. Um, but yeah. We, mm-hmm. we like to talk about a show's like lasting legacy or its impact that it has. So in your mind, Mark, what do you think is the show's legacy? Yeah, what I think is the, the show's legacy is that it, it created a roadmap for what Batman could do to be respected in a serious tone. And it's it's not just that it started here and ended here. Like you've mentioned, it went on to influence other series. And it was also one of the few properties that got a sequel series, Yeah, you know, with, with an older Bruce Wayne training the next Batman, just like extreme ghostbusters. Right. Yeah. So to me, this was trailblazing. This was the roadmap for how to make like Batman, not just socially relevant again, mm-hmm. but how to market him to a more widespread audience and not just lovers of comic books you know not just people who who knew batman like this is where batman truly began to to you know spread out and and dig dig wider for a moment you know like it so for me that's where it began that's where it began for i should even say just me that this is where batman began for a lot of people you know um so that's that's where i really think that this will will kind of live i think people will go back and find it and appreciate it again because They've never seen it and they just weren't aware of it. But I do consider this moment. And I know people will probably go, no, no, no. Keaton did this and the movies did this. And I'm like, I'll give you some credit there. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people who needed an introduction, maybe they couldn't afford to go to the movies. Yeah. <laughs> like this was it. This was it for me because I didn't, I didn't actually see the movies until years later, dude. Yep. So this, this was it for me. This was my, my entry beyond comics into Batman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, hundred percent, man. I'm just going to mirror a lot of what you said too. Like this show one, its impact on the character is long lasting. I think everyone who does a voice for Batman and isn't trying to in some way, like do what Conroy did is doing a disservice to the character. Obviously like they all kind of take their own thing uh, and do their own thing with it. But like the best, like the best Batman voices usually try and do a Conroy impression to some, some default to some, some degree, not default. Um, what it's done for the character, like you said, like this was the gateway for a lot of people to liking Batman. I mean, you had like kids who 
weren't reading the comic books. They didn't see the movies yet. This was their first entry to Batman, and this is what got them into reading the comics. This is what made them go watch the movies afterwards because they saw yeah. how great the show was. And then, like, again, like, this is now Batman going forward. Like, I think if there's a singular point that really says this is where the see, like, this is where we take, like, this is where the character, like, changed, and this is now how we go in the, like, that direction, that's here. Because even at some point, like, the Batman movies got goofy and had to go away for a while. The series never did that. Like, Batman the Animated Series was strong from when it started on, like, Fox and to until it went to the, to the WB and it got a bit of a facelift. And then yeah. even then, like, the story was still great, even though maybe the viewership wasn't there anymore. And then it continued on. Like, even, like, Superman the Animated Series, it started out, like, with a really goofy Lex Luthor, but, like, we can't fucking do this anymore. Like, this, <laughs> we have to make Lex Luthor more serious and make him intimidating. And you see that start happening more after you have a Batman Superman crossover movie. You get this much more serious Lex Luthor after that. And you get more serious Superman stories after that. The Justice League animated series. Very adult conversations in that show. Wouldn't have been that without the show. And like everything, every everything that's modern Batman is gonna lead back to this cartoon. And I think that's yeah. what this show's legacy is, is it was a turning point for the character. Totally. Absolutely. And for those of you who have made it this far, we, we, we've been doing this a lot more lately because we, of course, want to thank you for listening to this show. And if you got here by accident, we always love to recommend reaching out. Uh, definitely you know, like, comment, subscribe, and do all those things. But also feel free to email us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. And your support goes an incredibly long way. And with some of the growth we've seen, whether it's through the standard podcast platforms or YouTube, we've seen a lot more of you uh, listening to us. So seriously, thank you so much. If you have any ideas for future shows, anything you'd like to discuss, just let us know. We'd love to hear from you. So we appreciate your time. And until next time, keep on dissecting. Thank you.